Hey, kin folk. My name is Mark Fields. Welcome to episode one, season one, whatever the thing one of the Kinship Collective. Um, and we exist to try and cultivate family in the sense of we are together. And we exist to end otherness. We, we want to get to a place where there is no us and them. There's just us. And we believe that storytelling will create imagination for that. And we believe that one of the greatest stories ever told is found in the scriptures. And so we'll kind of use that as a, as a space where we can find language and a common space that can provoke thought. And not everybody will agree. And that's the point. So today we are joined. We are joined by Sissy Brady Rogers. I want to call her doctor. I want to call her mystic. I want to call her all kinds of things. She's a pastor. Um, and she's just an image to me of, of healing and maturity, kindness and hope and thoughtfulness and seriousness. Um, and she recently shared about um, anger and how do we deal with anger? It was the Sunday after the 2020 elections. Um, I want to say where the, the, the sea was split, but uh, it's not even quite the Red Sea. Or it might have been the Blue Sea that was split. split. Uh, we saw kind of blue on the coast and red in the middle. But um, And we're just going to talk about politics and anger. But I think we're going to try and focus on empathy. And how do we get to that place in the middle? So we'll start, Sissy. Um, I gave a little bit of an introduction, but um, I'd love for you to be able to share who you are and how you kind of view yourself in the world. And, so we just share. Great. Thanks, Mark. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm a master's mama. I'm, I have two MAs, one in theology and one in marriage and family therapy. So I'm a mama, even though I never had kids of my own, I like to say. But, uh, you know, my journey to where I am now as a pastor of New Abbey in Pasadena um, part-time care and spiritual formation pastor was interesting in that when I first started at Fuller Seminary in the mid-80s, um, I thought I was going to get a PhD and teach theology, but soon realized I didn't like books that much. I preferred people. And so then I switched gears to doing MFT, thinking I'd work in the church with families specifically because I was dealing with my own family stuff and working with kids in the church and seeing how they were all good people, but we lacked the skills uh, of emotional regulation in order to have the kind of communication we needed to have the kind of love that we all wanted. And so that really led me into studying marriage and family therapy. And I didn't plan to be a therapist. I was going to work in the church and do family ministry, which I did for a few years. But then through a course of events, um, left that and went focused on marriage and family therapy, got licensed, built a practice. And then at some point, 10 years into it, it was like, wait a minute, I really want to do stuff in the church and I want to do workshops and retreats. So I started doing more of that. And that has kind of led me full circle to connecting with New Abbey and then bringing coming in to working in the church, teaching emotional regulation and you know, kind of doing what I planned to do, but doing it with more of an adult population. And the goodness is, you know, way back when I, I had a class that I just thought was the best thing. It was called um, Helping Children Grow Healthy Emotions. 
And, you know, I tried to market it. I did it at my own church and I did it at one other church that I had a very close connection with. And I tried contacting all these churches, trying to offer it, trying to get it out there. Nobody wanted it, you know, and it's so interesting because, yeah, it was just interesting how the church has resisted uh, dealing with emotion, dealing with passion, dealing with this life energy that is the core of everything in terms of even being holy people. If we can't deal with our, our energy, our emotion, this passion that either it, it's either going to be used for good or for bad, for, for building up uh, or tearing down for life or for death. Mm. And if we don't learn to skillfully work with that, you know, we're going to be where we are as a church, you know, with everybody name calling and acting like junior hires. And, you know, it's kind of just nuts when you see what's happened in the church, let alone in the bigger culture. But if we can't even as Christians who all believe and follow the same Christ, um, apparently, supposedly, and yet, you know, there's people out there saying they can't be Christians if they don't, you know, believe in thus and so. And it's like, really? Like, whoa. Yeah. Anyway, that's my story. And that's how I got to here. Yeah. I, what, what values do you think drive your life right now? So I I hear reconciliation and what you just said. Um, I hear hope and forwardness, maybe optimism. I don't know if that's a value, but Mm -hmm. what do you think, what values kind of drive who you are? Well, the core of everything for me is always love. And, you know, from I, as I've looked back at my life, I knew that from the time I was young and my earliest memories with just wanting to be loved, you know, wanting love in my life, wanting to, you know, engage with friends and always having this sense of wanting to be friends with everybody and get along with everybody and not really understanding how, how it was that there were these divisions, even as little kids, you know people start forming little cliques and one person calls, you know, and I just never, that never worked for me um, because I saw and liked people across, you know, diverse people groups, even throughout those years. And um, I think that's always been just a theme of my experience of my life. So love is certainly one. Um, Certainly justice, because I do believe justice is the heart of the gospel. And that's, you know, my my faith was revolves around the gospel. Um, And probably being a wisdom person that I think the world and especially the church is too full of people that are full of information and Mm -hmm. ideas, but, but aren't really looking at people's lived experience enough to really take those values and ideas and put them on the ground in a way that makes a difference in people's life. And wisdom is really the intersection of information and experience and the practical application of good ideas to real life. And um, I think those are a few of the things that drive me. Those are, those are, those are beautiful. I I feel like to me, the next question is, what are the the lived experiences that have shaped those values for you? Mm-hmm. Some of the the life's experience that have solidified those values in your own life. Yeah, well, certainly growing up in a what we used to call a dysfunctional family or an ineffective family, where 
people didn't know how to have communication and deal with feelings effectively. We were an Irish Catholic, uh, you know, loud kind of party family, you know, when everyone liked to have raucous kind of discussions and such, but often didn't listen to each other well enough. So that certainly uh, formed me. My, my parents were both attorneys. I have a brother who's an attorney and I became a therapist. And I think it was because, you know, the, the, we were all really good at arguing with each other, but nobody listened. And it's interesting mm-hmm. how that happened. I'm um, going through, you know, my own issues with drugs and alcohol um, beginning and as a teen and then living with that with my family and my mom and she had, you know, depression, um, alcohol and substance abuse and suicide, multiple suicide attempts over the years. So that formed me, my parents divorce formed me. And then just realizing I think the brokenness of my own life and living in a church that didn't seem to acknowledge that, you know, and when I did go to people and pray and say, hey, you know, I'm smoking pot and doing this, and they'd be like, oh, let's pray, you know, the college group and and then it would like, they'd pray for me and then it'd be like nothing. And I'd be like, okay, now what? You know, so I'd go back and find my party friends and we'd be smoking dope or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> ew, I don't know. Nobody ever said go to a 12-step group or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. So that, and then marrying a, marrying my husband, who we, we met under that, kind of like he was going through a divorce. I was dealing with substance abuse and such. And And we talked and we talked about these things and we, you know, supported each other and acknowledged that, you know, the church wasn't helping us the way we needed to. And Mm. then much of our life together was, you know, kind of being on the edge of the church, always pushing the limits, doing the kind of innovative stuff. Um, He taught a class on first Peter at one church for a while. And he had this little, Uh, visual it was well he talked he was really about no more church as usual and he Mm. had this little visual of a little church with a steeple and an x through it you know like because (laughs) way back then even in the 90s we were just advocating that the church as usual was not really helping people experience the transformative power of the gospel Um, so all of those things and then certainly his death 21 months ago has really shaped my life now in that what I'm doing now feels like a continuation of that. What, what he was working on at the end of his life was what he called the big G gospel. And he, the very day he died, he'd written, a, he'd started writing, a, he never published it. He'd started his first post on a, he'd started a medium blog called growing small um, about the big G gospel because that was the irony of it, that if we really follow the gospel, we become small, we become a servant, we, we go into the ground and die like a seed. Um, and that's so not what the church is these days. It's all about bigness and ego and look at how great we are and aren't we the best. And like, it's like, eh? is that how we're supposed to be as a church? So anyway, mm-hmm. all of those things have formed me, I think. Absolutely. I um, I could feel myself get a little bit emotional as you shared about uh, somehow that 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 story. It's like the end slash the climb, one of the climaxes um, about that him writing this thing on the day that he 
passes about what it means to be a seed and that that takes root in you and grows and has spread out now. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I I think about um, what the, the context that you guys met in also, which a lot of times for me, I think about those really, um, it's not even transitional. A lot of people would talk about, oh, this is a time of, you know, transition or challenge or whatever. But I, I would, I mean, you're the trauma specialist. I don't, I wouldn't say it's trauma, but for him to experience the grief of losing a marriage and for you to be struggling through addiction and to come together, but there's something really fertile. And in my own story, I feel like the deepest pains have been really fertile grounds for self-awareness and understanding um, candor and a new authenticity and new understandings of self um, Mm -hmm. and a different generosity with that. And maybe there's Mm -hmm. also um, a different um, unwillingness to pretend also um, for for me personally. And I'm sure that there are different people that it creates a a recluse or um, fear, self-preservation, defense mechanisms go up. Yeah. And maybe that's not necessarily the the fertility, um, the fertile soil. And it's weird because then the behaviors or the practices create fertility. And so if I become self-defensive, there's not, in my mind, I'm, there's always growth to be had. But I think like it becomes, you'll, you'll grow less. But if mm-hmm. I am, if I maybe surrender to that and, and push into the pain um, mm-hmm. and learn to be open with it, then there's, then there's some there's soil for growth mm. back to mm. back to what Dave would have said about yeah. um, life maybe coming from death. Which you mentioned this uh, this Sunday when you shared about uh, another death. But before we get into that, I want to read the scripture and just see okay. how uh, how it frames the rest of our conversation, uh, and then we'll we'll go from there. We're reading from Luke chapter six verses. You read a long portion. I did. And I can read, I, I'm gonna read the same one because I think there's okay. uh, one because I'm gonna follow the lead, the lead, the lead, the follow the lead. <laughs> I'm gonna follow your lead, um, okay. and there's so much beauty in here. So the more, the more, uh, the more soil, the more materials we throw out there, then there's the more we can make. So I'll start mm-hmm. Luke chapter six, verse twenty-seven. Um, Jesus, uh, this is Luke's kind of version of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Sermon on the Plain, however you want to describe it, this reframing. Uh, you said on Sunday, this is the, it's kind of like this space where how do we live right side up in an upside down world? And this becomes this crux of different values that when lived into create a different experience, a different reality. Um, and so here we are in Luke chapter six, I'll start with verse 27 and we're going to read all the way to verse 42 and uh, we will see how it goes. Jesus says, <clears throat> oh man, Jesus, I love this double entendre, Jesus, um, the name and the meaning and the expression. Um, so Jesus says, um, I say to you, did you start at 24 or 27? I started at 27. Um, I said it started with the woes. Woe to yeah, you. Yeah, we got to start there. Yeah, because I can't start with but. Because it's just one T and not two T. So a two T sentence starting with but, that's a different kind of sentence. Let me start at this other but still with the woes. So Jesus pronouncing some woes in verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. 
Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners live the, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be daughters and sons of the Most High. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, or you will be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And he told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Can a blind woman lead a blind woman? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above their teacher, but everyone, when they are fully trained, will be like their teacher. Why do you see the speck in your sister's eye, but do nothing to notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that's in your eye. When you yourself don't even see the log that's in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck that's in your own. Or then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. Mm. This is the incredible transformative word, full stop, period, capital W. Um, Thanks be to God. Come on. You, you, you took us through this in this mm -hmm. time kind of post-politics, um, and you said there's something for us to learn here. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'm going to – I think there's some points to the stuff. So we're, we're going to talk, and I, I – I think for me, like, I really, I just want to jump to the end. And my mind is like, well, what do we do when, 
Mm-hmm. What do we do when? But I, I would love to hear the story that you shared about your mother um, on Sunday. Or you can start however you want to start. And if yeah. anything kind of new was sparked in the reading of the scripture today or anything you remembered that was mm-hmm. like, oh, that part. Let's go there. Yeah. You're the guru. <laughs> oh, the guru is within you. The guru Ooh. in you sees the guru in me. Oh, um, Um, I feel like, well, the thing that I talked about was how my mom was the one who taught me about anger, hatred, and loving your enemies. And Mm. the idea that you can't love your enemy until you acknowledge that you hate them and Mm. that you're capable of hatred and that hatred is the accumulation of anger that is not gotten processed in an active, healthy way, but has built up over time and led to this chronic state of, you know, rage that turns into hatred. Hatred can also be in a momentary thing where in the moment of some tragedy or something awful happening, you know, you can hate, but um, of the hate that we see in our country is not, you know, just an acute thing. It's a long standing uh, stuff that has been repressed. Mm. And, you know, people said the benefit of Trump getting elected is that we, you know, the, the, and the fact that he was so close in this election is it acknowledges how many people in our country don't get it, you know, and that have some covert racism inside of them that they would vote for someone who's so overtly racist which, Mm. you know, others would disagree and say he's not a racist, I guess, but I don't know how that works. So (laughs) my mom, um, I I talked about how, you know, as she was declining in her abuse of alcohol and uh, prescription medications while I was in junior high and high school, Um, And just ineffective in her ability to parent me. I, you know, I hated her and we hate, we, we get angry because of deprivation. You know, what is not given to us? Like when we are not given the basic Mm. resources we need to survive and thrive, we're going to be angry. Um, You know, why do people steal? Well, something inside of us says, I don't have what I need. I don't, I don't have what I need. And it may not be, you know, whatever it is we're stealing that is even the issue, but it's this internal sense of deprivation and -hmm. entitlement that I deserve something more than what I've got. And Mm -hmm. so I'm going to just go take what I want. Um, So deprivation of our basic resources, and then also violation, you know, oppression, um, things that are done to us. So both what is withheld from us and what is done to us can create a lot of anger, protective anger, that anger is a protective emotion that's given to us to help advocate for ourselves, for safety and for well-being. And that we, you know, rightly get angry in response to threat so that we have physical energy to push back and push away. And that that same anger is connected with the aggressive life support energies of passion that say, oh, I have a dream and I want to see something happen. So I'm going to go make it happen. You know, that, that they're very closely connected and mm-hmm. um, half, you know, the, the regulation that we need to learn 
and teach kids and learn as adults is how do we take those passions and energies and not do more damage, not end up destroying the world we want to live in, but Mm -hmm. finding ways to advocate um, for good. Anyway, and that with my mom, it was just, we were very messy in the ways we dealt with it, but we dealt with it. You know, we yelled at each other and I was like, fuck you, mom. And I hate you. And she never, you know, told me, fuck you. I don't think that was not her. She was not a woman of foul language. She'd raise children with foul language. I don't know how that happened. I guess we were kids going to school, but, um, you know, but she, in spite of her inability to really own a lot of her stuff uh, directly, especially in those years, later years, she would, you know, when we, when I was an adult, but she would always be the one who, after our, you know, these conflicts, she would come and say, you know, I'm sorry. She would apologize mm-hmm. and, and say, you know, let's start over, let's have a new beginning. And, you know, it was ineffective in the long run, but it was something, it was a point of reconciliation, a point of wanting, of saying, I love you and I want this. And also, you know, we, we, she was not, we, 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 we spoke of love in our family, you know, we weren't people and we hugged and, you know, we had affection, but so there was that foundation that I think enabled us to at least have some expression of, of our hard feelings. If, if mm-hmm. children don't feel loved, if they don't feel safe emotionally, like held in love, they're not going to be able to express their, their volatile emotions. Um, mostly, I would say, um, there is something about feeling loved and feeling secure in love that enables us, you know, in a marriage, in a family, to be forthcoming and honest about what we're really feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I so appreciate your generosity with that story. And um, I think when I think about the log in your own eye, and, and I think when you shared that story about you watching your mother's kind of unheld, kind of come out in the, into the world in a way that reflect, that, that affected you, in a way that mm-hmm. deprived you of the mother you thought you should have in a way that maybe violated what you needed or hopes mm-hmm. your personhood or whatever um you were looking at your mother's the speck in your mother's eye which feels like a weird thing to think about because it's the this, this size thing that jesus does with this speck mm-hmm. and log there um yeah and maybe i wonder about if we perceived um those issues in others as specs and our own as logs. It's almost like there's a measure of, of responsibility mm-hmm. of the size of like, if this is yeah. a log, we should be concerned with a log. Right. But it like, and, and to call your mother's addiction that deprived you of the mother you, you we feel like you should have had does not feel like a speck. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow it feels like the perspective of Jesus would say, um, yeah. There's so much when we talk about that word holy, there's so so other that when we can become or mature into a space like that, someone else's situation will always be a speck and mine will always be a log because of the responsibility factor. Exactly. I think of uh I think about the internal was it internal attribution error 
a fundamental attribution error. Whereas like whenever th- whenever something good happens, that's that's because of me. But when something bad happens, I don't take responsibility of that. Yeah. Somehow that resonates with the ways that I point the finger because it's exactly. we just we yours is a log and mine is a speck. That's the fundamental yeah. attribution error. But mm-hmm. Jesus says, Oh no, no, no. Let's turn this upside down thing right side up. Theirs is a theirs is a speck and yours is a log. Exactly. Um, but when when you shared that story, it made me think about deprivation and violation. And it makes me wonder, like real. Like, is it real? Is it perceived? Because deprivation is real and violation is is real. Even saying that, it, it makes me shudder when I think about the ways family members have been violated, when I think about statistics for women and children in our world being violated. <sighs> it makes me just feel... Um, um, Protective. I don't know. Yeah, and um, and angry. Some of that, yeah. it just made me rage. That's just yeah. like... Um, but I, I wonder, in a, in a time like today, the 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 Tuesday after the Tuesday, mm-hmm. um, I think about what, how do we deal with that? So, because I, I'm thinking about deprivation, I'm thinking about this election has done things in my family that I never, I've never experienced in my family before. Mm-hmm. And my family always felt like, oh, this is hospitality. And, and so some of my background and my mother, my mother is German and English. Um, and, um, white and she has always embodied the kingdom to me she's always represented this way of jesus i I was thinking about the other day um the level of generosity and there was a time where she had we'd always been in this busted up van she that she had kind of bought from our neighbor that one of the neighbor's ex-boyfriends had like thrown white paint all over this brown 1982 econoline ford van situation the most embarrassing situation ever um and she finally bought like this new car as a Ford Focus, I remember. And we like first trip to the grocery store. It's like, oh, look at the Maybach. We're in the Bentley now. What's up? And I remember we leave and she looks left, right. She kind of pulls out and there's a guy on a bike, uh, uh, a Latino kind of guy that I kind of perceived as Latino, bikes into my door. I'm like nine years old. So there's like this huge dent in the door. And I'm like, yo, this is the Bentley, bro. What are you doing? And my mom looks out and there's just milk on the ground and she just pulls back into the parking lot and buys him some more milk and stuff. And we're like poor at this time, but she always embodied that situation. Mm-hmm. This same mom, uh, you know, it's just like, mom, I'm not trying to speak bad about you publicly. I love you so much and I respect you so much. But yesterday when Karen called you about the Thanksgiving, it was like, there's just this, trauma around the election that created just otherness and distance and i'm like yo i've <sighs> never heard you say this before you've never said anything you've never acted like this like th- that's not to me that's like that's not the woman who who bought the milk for the guy who violated your new whip and mm-hmm. now you're like you know telling your daughter-in-law for your favorite you know your favorite holiday that you're not sure you can come over and you're not sure we can come over your mm-hmm. grandchildren um so this election has done different things wow. around. Yeah, that, I mean, so, and, and I, I mean, I don't even know how I hold that. I think we're going to get this thing together. We're going to reconcile. We're going to be together. But th- that deprivation and that, that violation, to me, the core question is like, how much of that is 
how much of our experience of that is based on our perception of what of the expectation it's not a bad thing to expect your parents to love you so then when you find yourself attracted to somebody of the same sex or addicted to uh, a substance or whatever we expect those things to happen and then they don't so I, I guess i'm you know that's not an unrealistic expectation but we just have these experiences these real experiences that are like whoa i i, I thought love didn't do that I thought mm-hmm. love looked like this. Yeah. And so I guess, yeah, however you can navigate through that fumble foible of a question, <laughs> what do we do? I mean, what, is, what do we do? What is that? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing we do is breathe. You know, if we take that big breath and <sighs> that letting go breath, you know, because stress accumulates in our bodies. And so we notice how as even as you tell your story, I could feel my body, you know, ugh, feeling identifying with you feeling it and getting, you know, uh, you know, and, and so taking responsibility has to do with, um, you know, first of all, taking responsibility for my own emotional regulation and reactivity. And that's where taking the log out of my own eye, um, owning the fact that I am capable of hatred, owning the fact that I am an I can be very angry, um, owning my own places where I've created walls and shut people out rather than tried to keep an open mind and seek to understand rather than be understood. Um, you know, the prayer of St. Francis is so powerful mm-hmm. that when we become so transformed by grace, when we really do fall into the ground and die, it, it, here's the thing. You have to have a healthy ego. You have to have a healthy sense of self. You have to know your feelings, your thoughts, your wants, your needs. You really have to own who you are before you can let yourself die. And I think one of the most powerful parts uh, of the the Jesus story in terms of the, the last days, the passion story is when at John describes him taking up the towel at the last supper. He said, Jesus taking up the towel, knowing who he was, took up the towel mm. and began to wash his disciples feet. This yeah. idea that he wasn't ready to die unless he really knew who he was and what his call was. And I think too much in the church, we, we, we're not formed, we're telling people to die or to become a servant when they don't even know who they are yet. And they've never not accessed all their power and resources. And, um, and I think that's a lot of where our problems lie is that most of us are, well, we're all still learning how to die, how to let go of our own agendas um, our own need to be understood and have empathy given to us. And, but that's, that's the, that's the path is, can I let go of my own need to be understood and first try to understand and ask them questions and re- not enter into like debates, but to somehow cross that divide and say, help me understand more about how it is you see it this way. And I, you know, personally, 
with this current situation, I've barely done that with a few people on Facebook. I haven't had in person, you know, or any close family members, but, mm -hmm. but, you know, we've all seen the problem on Facebook, but in the moments where I tried to stop and, and see those posts and be like, okay, how is it that that person became to that way of seeing things? Mm -hmm. um, so I think we have to have boundaries and we have to know when we're ready to engage and when we're not. And some of it is by owning, okay, where am I with my own reactivity here? You know, am I in a place where I'm ready to go in and try to first understand, not be understood? You know, because if I'm not, I'm going to tend to be in that more protective, closed off space and really to have realistic expectations of what we can get from these people that we love and that are family, but we're on such different places and to say, okay, that is who they are. Can I accept and allow them to be who they are and love what is lovable and try to let go of or forgive because forgive a fiamy in the Greek is literally to let go, you know, to let go of the judgments I hold against someone. And I, one of the things I said on Sunday is in order to do that, I have to let go of the judgments I hold against myself that I have to be learning to practice forgiveness and letting go um, within myself to do it with the other. And mm -hmm. I think that's some of what I learned with my mom. And there were definitely, you know, a lot of holidays, not for political reasons, but for otherwise where, you know, I had to armor up to go see my mom. Um, and because she just triggered me, you know, it was just being with her was triggering and I would get reactive and I would feel defensive for non-political reasons. We could argue and discuss politics fine because we were mostly on the same page, but so those are a couple things that come to mind. Yeah. I think yeah, we got a couple minutes here before you go enjoy a delicious lunch. Um, <laughs> I think um, you, you mentioned on Sunday, and I've never heard a therapist say this. I feel like I might have heard it before. I'm sure this is like a lovely go-to therapy move around boundaries, that fences make great neighbors. Mm -hmm. And when I think about heading to Thanksgiving, like what does it actually look like? So and we're talking about this context where it's like everybody wants reconciliation. Everybody is trying to push for unity everybody is trying to push from everybody's different lens. No matter if we have the same values, we have different experiences that color them differently. So we're all thinking, we might think the same thing needs to be done. We might see there's gazillion different ways to get to that place. But I think about the boundaries and how do I understand like how to engage my family or engage, I don't even wanna say the other, kinship space but engage the person who i perceive as my other or my enemy that jesus would say what does boundary setting and boundary keeping look like um well i think setting boundaries as to what topics i'm willing to discuss or ready to have conversations about versus what i'm not and to be willing to say on the front end, you know, I'm sorry, that's something that I don't feel I'm ready 
to have a conversation with you about, to make it about me and my, my limits and my vulnerabilities, as opposed to being like, I don't want to talk to you about that. I love um, that. I can just hear, I, cause I know how it's back to that self-preservation mode. And then the ego that says like, this isn't about my inability to handle this. This is about you. The problem. And so we kind of come to that table and it's like, yeah. we think we're trying to do the mature thing. And that slight like log in your eye, mm -hmm. stuck in my eye moment is when I say, I'd love to have this conversation, but I just don't think you've done the reading. I just don't think yeah. you see it right yet. Yeah. And it, it's that small and that, that egotistical um, self-preservation. I just imagine the woundedness because I'm already coming in guarded and wounded because of my, mm -hmm. the deprivation and the violation or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then I point the fingers at you back to your log and my spec. And it just, it just, it sets that tone. It's, it's a problem. And yeah. it's not, it's back to that fertility that we talked about. That's not the space that, that creates growth and wholeness and mm -hmm. shalom and peace um, mm -hmm. and, and things being right. It's like, I'm, I, instead of coming with my sword or my machine gun to the table, I just brought like the, the paper, the, the paper cutter. So I can just give you a nice paper cut on the, on your index <laughs> fingers. So and now you can't pass any plates. Every time you pass a plate, you're going to feel the sting of that. So I, I really appreciate you saying how we, how do we make it about us? Yeah. How, how I, do I know when, go ahead. Well, go you share what you said. I guess my next question is how do I know when the table's not safe? Yeah. Um, I think we learned that's, you know, you have to listen to your own body, your own inner world. You know, one of the things we don't do enough of is listen to our own experience. So there's really the content of personal experience, our thoughts, which we're much more comfortable with as a culture and feelings, which we're very uncomfortable with in general as a culture and sensations, our bodily reactions. Um, and thoughts can also be images, um, but those are that's really the, the content. There's a acronym SIFT, sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts that um, Dan Siegel, uh, he's a interpersonal neurobiologist, psychiatrist who is out of UCLA and he's written a lot of books on the mind and emotion and empathy and mindfulness. And he talks about, you know, we have to become experts on our own experience of this basic content so that we are in any given moment aware of where we are in space and time. And if we're really in a place where we need to say yes, or we are available to say yes, or where we, we need to say no. Um, you know, and, and the metrics of, am I calm? Am I peaceful? Am I at ease? Does this feel, does this decision feel free or is it forced? Um, am I making this choice from a place of obligation and duty or am I making it from a place of desire and a, a wanting to be connected? So kind of thinking through the, the rationale and the why I'm doing it. And if I really am doing it purely out of obligation and, you know, kind of from a place of resistance and, you know, then is it the best? Because maybe that's what hypocrisy is, you know, going and doing the right thing 
or what we perceive as the right thing, but being inauthentic in our presentation of ourselves and how we show up. You know, if I can't, if I can't authentically go and be there and be present in love. What am I doing there? Yeah. And, and to be able to say, you know what, family, I know myself right now and I'm not in a place I can show up and be a loving presence in this engagement. And maybe it's best this year that I don't come because I don't want to ruin things for everyone else. You know, like making myself the problem really is a big part of maturity and, and not, not being about pointing the finger, even if, you know, truly, I mean, my mom did have a log and I, I had a speck. I mean, I was the adolescent, but once I was an adult, I had a log, you know, I had to, I had to choose as an adult how I was going to deal with the shit that I'd been given And so cleaning up my own side of the street and taking responsibility for my own happiness and my own well-being is really what shalom is, is when we live in a world where everybody has the resources and support they need to be well and to be at peace and to be whole and to take responsibility for themselves. Um, And I think that's what the gospel and Jesus message about love is is those of us who have that, you know, who have what we need, what I need, am I willing to give some of that up to help the ones who really don't have what they need to be well and to be resourced? And I think that's the the lie of so much of what we see in, you know, cultural Christianity is we're all sitting in our fancy houses with our retirement accounts and, you know, sending some checks to some organizations and calling that enough. Um, but, I, you know, my friend Harlan Redman, um, and he and I talk a lot about these things. And he's always said it's an economic issue as much as it's a racial issue. And mm-hmm. this phrase that came to me once that I've told him he should go promote this in the world. But am I willing to give up my possibility of having it all so that all may have? And that I think, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And I think Mm. that has a lot to do with, you know, the transformation of the gospel that if we really are, that's what I think saints are. They're people who have, you know, given up, whatever it was they thought they should get to have and became willing to let others have it's mother Teresa in India. It's um, Dorothy day in her time. It's uh, my great uncle Solanus Casey, you know, who was a priest in Detroit back in the day. And um, yeah, it's uh, maybe it's Mark Fields and Karen Fields, you know, not pursuing some corporate path so you could have everything and, you know, being a young life person. Sissy, are you serious? How do you know that? You're not supposed to know that about me right now. Living in debt and poverty because you decided to go get a theological education. I don't know. Just some of my friends. Are you in my text messages? How do you know my text messages? (laughs) Are you in my journal from this morning, Sissy? Jesus. Uh, golly, I, I, that, 
Yeah, we're gonna have to we let the show okay. notes say the definition of a saint is at the minute, whatever minute this is. Um I love that. I think oh man, my possibility give up my possibility of having it all so that um and for me it would be so that I can work towards the possibility of all having some yeah. more um and and it's experiencing kinship and what does it mean to be a part of that reality that reality turned right side up governed by love that and mature that invitation to like make it that radical ownership about this is me Mm -hmm. this is this is a me thing this is not a you thing Mm -hmm. um i absolutely love that i want to would you take a moment and describe uh, we're we're coming to the close of, of your yeah, time. Yeah, we're good. It's okay. Um, but I want. I can I want eat to a hear... quick. I'll eat a quicker lunch than I plan to. Oh, this is I, too I, good. I so appreciate that because I, I want I want to hear you articulate maybe an imagination for what does it look like when the world is at peace when we have become mature enough to love our neighbor as ourselves when we are like oh this is mine and this is a law there's lots of responsibility. And when I can look at somebody else and say, oh, man, that's a spec. But I'm sure there's a reason that spec is there. Back to seeking to understand before seeking to to be understood. Uh, But when I think of kinship and this idea that there is no other, that we are together. And and, but what did that actually look like? And I'd love for you to maybe articulate a little bit about what that image can look like. What does it look like? as an individual, but as a people, like when I'm walking yeah. down the street, when you're walking down your street in your neighborhood, what does that look like? That's a huge question. I think the thing that came to mind earlier when you were talking about this is the fact that differentiation and um, separateness is going to be a part of our reality, this side of eternity. Um, where you know the Trinity models this differentiation and unity that the three in one and that love is not love if love is not a choice. And so union and, and oneness is a choice and it's impossible to have that be an ongoing reality all the time in this limited conditional world where we're all separate beings and we have separate senses of self. Um, having said that, I think, you know, union those moments of feeling deeply connected um, with another empathy with and from others builds our own internal sense of empathy for ourselves. And over time, I think what a good spiritual practice in life does is it increases our own sense of internalized empathy that a relationship with God, with love, if we have a connection to eternal love, we have always empathy within ourselves that then we can offer to others and always have a perspective that when someone shits on me, it's their shit, not mine. And to, to build this capacity not to take things personally. And, and I don't do that well. I shared that story on Sunday about renting the car and you know, going off, starting to go off on the agency guy who did a great job, by the way, he worked for Enterprise, his name was Herb, and he handled me very well. But 
you know, if I could realize that Herb was just doing his job, he's not attacking me by pointing out that there's some scratch on the car that wasn't on the report, you know, and, and I think that's, it, again, it's a personal thing, like, when we all have enough empathy with inside of ourselves to deal with our own reactivity, and realize that, you know, most of our fights and our arguments and our stuff are not because someone is really coming after us directly. Um, but there are places where that's happening. I mean, that's the truth. There are people, you know, police are murdering black guys, you know, and, and, you know, at a higher rate than any other population. So what's that about? And how do you, how do we deal with that? And I don't know. I think that's, that has something to do with the church being the church and us being the ones that step up and try to help and try to be reconcilers and whatever that means. And I don't know. So I guess it's being comfortable with the mystery of not knowing and doing my part to be a loving presence in the world. Maybe that's really what it comes down to. And then when I'm living in that space myself, I have more clarity, you know, to see how to help be a part of union and empathy and kinship and not othering people. I think that's it. I think it's the more love, the more sense of love and, and being able to feel love within myself, the less I need to be understood and the more I can seek to understand I have another story I'll tell another time about, you know, grace and forgiveness. But I think when we're, when we really have that kind of a spiritual life that connects us to this energy we call grace, um, you know, really bad shit can happen to us. And yet in those moments we, we, we see, oh, that person is a limited broken human being just like me. So. Every, Part two. Come on, come on. Um, I'm here for it. All um, right. I think every time you say shit, I think manure. Um, yeah, yeah. Our conversation of, of just the, what what is cultivate, what is fertile soil? And yeah. those moments where we're, our pain is triggered and our reactivity and our woundedness is triggered this is also this is an opportunity to say oh, oh that wound is still there oh that still yeah. hurts when people do this or do this or do that or, yeah. Um, yeah uh i i i so appreciate who you are uh Thanks. i so appreciate you so generous with your story um and with your thoughts and uh, and i know that you are a part of spreading um kinship in the world and yeah. a wonder and a part of helping people become um healers yeah. helping people become um liberated liberators and whole kind of healers and so i yeah. so appreciate you um Thanks. and this time and i do look forward to another conversation to hear that story yeah. um, Good. so Me thank too. you 
my Thanks, sister. I Mark. appreciate you. Absolutely. Yes. Have an incredible this lunch. This really fun. Thanks. Have a great day. And thanks for letting me come on and share my stuff. Absolutely. Your shit. Right. Your manure. <laughs> love it. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Appreciate you. Sister. I got a lot, lot of manure. Come on. Come on. All right, sister. All right. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. I don't know how uh, how we finished this thing, episode one, um, but thanks for listening. And we're going to keep on bringing these conversations to try to get after, to become whole, to become these whole healers and to invite um, this sense of whole, of unity and togetherness and family. So um, just keep on looking. You can like and subscribe at the probable button, not on this screen, because we don't have that kind of digital uh, mm -hmm. editing uh, technique. But you can like and subscribe down below. Share with a friend who you think needs to set some boundaries before they head home for Thanksgiving or whatever. But um, you are so loved. You're so worth it. You are so worthy. You are enough. Um, and we are family. And you got sisters and brothers all over the place. You can follow Sissy on Instagram at SissyBR. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And you can, and she's a therapist. And you can have more, much more healing where that came from. Yeah. And you can follow me on Instagram at Mark underscore fields. And uh, I'd love to just to connect. So you are loved and we are family. Much love y'all.